So I've just turned off the main road, much to the annoyance of my sat-nav, uh, in order to just see what I thought of as I were. And this is just these purely straight roads with fields of crops either side. I'll try and get some pictures up of it, but it's absolutely exactly like you'd expect. And they just go on and on and on and on with nothing really either side other than just these kind of um, cereal kind of crops and things. But it is the picture of Iowa, I think, in coming out of Des Moines to try and find some people to talk to who represent the less urban view and then the more kind of traditional uh, view of the state, particularly in its caucuses. We should have some luck around here. Can I ask you something? Is, is this heaven? It's Iowa. Iowa? dreams come true. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. and welcome to the second episode of How to Become President of the United States, the podcast. My name's Dave Smith. Today we're in Iowa for the Iowa caucuses, the very first point in the presidential nominating process where people get a chance to vote for the candidate who they want to be their president. However, it's very, very different to elsewhere. The majority of states use things called primaries, which are simple ballots. The Iowa caucus, on the other hand, is a far more complex procedure where people all go into a room, debate things with each other, stand in different corners, all of which we'll get into later on. We're also going to look at the key themes for people running for president in Iowa. What events do you have to go to before the caucus even begins in order to get your name up there? How do you win over the folk of Iowa where you have some very, very liberal cities and some conservative rural lands? And what are the key events, including the Harkin Steak Fry, the Jefferson Jackson Day Dinner and the Iowa State Fair? And how does this all come together to form what is a unique and very, very different and fascinating, fascinating first contest in the entire nation? But to start with, I just wanted to really get a feel for the state, so I swung by its newspaper of record. I'm Jason Noble, the chief political reporter for the Des Moines Register. You know, uh, Iowa is, is really an interesting place, I think, geographically, and sort of the political geography of it is interesting. You've got a couple of, of mid-sized cities that have a, an actual urban feel to them. You have a lot of smaller cities that, that have sort of a manufacturing base and, and, and have sort of you know, signs of urban and industrial life, but a lot of the state is just an ocean of cornfields and soybean fields. And, and yes, the, all the roads in Iowa go in straight lines and turn at 90 degrees. Uh, you know, one, a, a political strategist once told me that every county uh, takes 30 minutes to drive across. And so you can sort of judge the distance of something by how many counties away it is. And you can say, okay, well, that's three counties on the map. We'll be there in an hour and a half. 
that's in in getting out and and driving across the state and holding events in these small towns small cities is such a part of the iowa caucus campaign experience and the mythology of it and, and i think candidates really seize on that and and want to be seen as as being out in the far reaches of the state and and making an effort to meet people where they actually are so we're going to do that a little bit later on when on jason's recommendation we go for a little bit of a drive but first things first what actually is a caucus and what does it look like in order to discuss this a bit further i met with someone who had well a little bit of experience of putting these things on my name is norm sturzenbach Um, i was the caucus director for the iowa democratic party um, during the 2007-2008 caucus cycle. Uh, after that, I was the executive director of the state party for the um, 2010 and 2012 election cycles. I'm a natural-born Iowan, um, born and raised here in a very political family, so I grew up with the Iowa caucuses and, and essentially have, have had some interaction with the caucuses since 1976. So, Norm, for British people who've never heard the term before, what actually is a caucus? Caucus is basically um, a series of meetings that take place in every precinct of the state all at the same time. So whether it's in January or February, um, some night, typically a Monday, um, at 7 o'clock, every precinct or every neighborhood within the the state has a caucus. And it's, it's a meeting, you know, there's an agenda, um, people show up, they register, they, um, the, the meeting's called to order, and then they get down to the business of the caucus. And um, it's, in its essence, what we are doing is it's a neighborhood discussion about the presidential candidates, and then each neighborhood is expressing their preference for which candidate they think would be best um, to lead um, and sort of ranking them um, without getting into too much of the technical details, ranking them, uh, their choices, you know, one, two, and three, we like this person best, and then this person, and then this person. And then that is sort of aggregated by the rest of the county, uh, the rest of the congressional districts in the state to then put forward, you know, here's, here are the top few candidates that um, Iowans like um, of this choice of candidates for president of the United States. But a caucus vote is different to a usual vote, isn't it? It's different to just a primary election where you go with a pen and paper. Tell me what actually happens as people come in. In the room itself, the way we get to that is um, pretty unique. Uh, I I don't think that there's really any other... I don't think that this process exists really anywhere else aside from Iowa and Nevada. And what we do is we count everybody in the room and we determine um, a viability threshold, which is about 15%. So what we say is basically in order to earn delegates, you have to have at least 15% of the, of the room. So a quick word here on delegates before I let Norm carry on because it's quite important. What presidential candidates are trying to win ultimately is not just individual votes from people, but delegates towards the presidential convention, which happens in the summer before the election, because it's the candidate with the most number of delegates who eventually gets to become the nominee. Now, delegates are decided according to population. So the state of Iowa, for example, has 49 delegates up for grabs, and this is broken down into county levels and then into these small rooms that he's talking about. That's how they're decided. But it differs hugely from state to state. So California, for example, has 495 delegates, and Wyoming has only 18. 
And so what's Norm saying is that in Iowa, you only qualify to get delegates if you poll more than 15% of a vote in that particular caucus. And if you don't, then you're called not viable. And that means people who voted for you in this first round, if their candidate's not viable, they can be won over and go and vote for somebody else who is viable to make sure that their vote counts more and their delegates are carried forward. Across the entirety of the country, 3,769 delegates are up for grabs within the Democratic Party. So you need 1,885 in order to get the majority and become the nominee. Whew, okay, back to Norm. So everybody, we determine that number. Everybody breaks up into their various groups and in, into different corners of the room um, so that you know in 2007 for example the Hillary Clinton people would go to one corner or the Barack Obama people would go to another corner or the John Edwards people would go to a, another corner and so forth and so on and then everybody would count um, the number of people in their group and if you didn't have enough people to become viable then you had the option of going to join another group or your second choice and then when all that process was done, we counted everybody again and awarded delegates based on um, the number of people in each group. And then that number gets counted up from all the precincts across the state, and um, a result statewide is sort of is, is put out there. And the way we look at it as Iowans is we're not choosing who we think should be president of the United States. We're really kind of expressing this is our preference. These are the top two or three candidates that we really like. Um, and then that kind of kicks off the next, the, the whole process um, for the rest of the states in the country to, to make their determination. So I think perhaps it's uh, maybe time just for a little bit of a history lesson here to try and get our heads around why it is Iowa votes in this way and how it's become the first in the nation to do so. Um, there's been a history of caucuses happening in Iowa since the early 1800s, even before Iowa officially became a state in 1846. Nobody can quite tell how or why the Formers of the Iowan Constitution decided upon this methodology for electing people, but they didn't. It became a fundamental part of the state structure and the way in which it operated. However, for a long time, it wasn't really a very big deal. Nobody really paid a huge amount of attention to it until some changes were brought in after 1968, where at the Democratic Party convention, it was hugely contested. It was in Chicago. There was a lot of protests, and we'll get onto it in a later episode. At that convention, there was a real, real feeling that something needed to change, that the nominating of the presidency and the candidates for it simply wasn't open and transparent enough, that these decisions were made by smoking white men in suits in back rooms. So the Democratic Party came forward ahead of the 1972 cycle and introduced a whole new series of rules about how candidates should be elected. And because Iowa had such a complicated process, and because one of these new rules said that you had to have all of your votes tallied and in a certain number of days before the convention, Iowa just went first because they thought it would take that amount of time to get it all to work. Again, nobody paid a huge amount of attention in 72. George McGovern slightly used the system, realizing the importance of it being first. But things really changed four years later when Jimmy Carter was running for the Democratic nomination. And he realized the benefit of winning the first contest as a little-known candidate from Georgia. If he could win in Iowa, he felt that would give him momentum which would carry him through the process and into the later states, and he proved right. So subsequently, the value of winning Iowa, the value of being the first state in the nation to vote in any form, really, really, really became apparent to the candidates, and that drew in a huge amount of money and a huge amount of interest. Now, there's an interesting part here where it intersects with the state of New Hampshire, which traditionally also has called itself the first state in the nation. And New Hampshire is the next episode, which we go and look at. But New Hampshire uses a traditional voting format of a primary. 
So the way in which after New Hampshire introduced a state law saying it always had to be the first primary in the nation, Iowa managed to get around this and maintain its supremacy as the first in the country was to say, well, we're a caucus and we're different. But enough of that for now. Later on, we're going to catch up with some folk who regularly go to caucuses and get a real feel for what it's like in the room and how exactly it differs from a simple balloted primary election. But first and foremost, the important thing to say is that the actual caucus itself is the very, very end point of the Iowa process. Candidates have to do a huge amount beforehand in order to get name recognition, shake as many hands as they can, and make sure they persuade voters of their cause. And there's a number of things they do in order to do this. One of them is called the Fall Grassley. It's named after Senator Chuck Grassley, who was a senator from Iowa. And he used to visit every single one of the 99 counties to make sure he canvassed the entire state. That's incredibly difficult. Not many candidates, although notably Rick Santorum did, but not many candidates have been able to do that recently. Instead, they focus on big set pieces within the Iowa calendar, which are important. Most notably, the Iowa State Fair, the Jefferson Jackson Day Dinner, and the Hawkins Steak Fry. So, given the prominence and promise of heavily fried food at each of these events, I thought I'd go and check them out for myself. Arriving at Iowa State Fair Foundation on the left. This is incredible. This is like really spooky because it's obviously it's a permanent fixture of this Iowa State Fair. So it's got a huge stadium. It looks almost, I mean this with no disrespect or um, ill will, but in its architecture kind of Nazi with its eagle emblems and its huge imposing structure. And then of course none of the burger vans or anything have got anyone near them and all the lights are off, but yet all the paraphernalia is still up. It's absolutely a sight to behold and you can see now the scale of it and why it's such a fixture within the presidential calendar. Gary, how do you do? Dave Smith, really good to meet you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you so much for both of you for giving me some time, I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. um, I was saying to Mindy, I normally set up in someone's office but this is phenomenal isn't it? It's like I, did, I didn't expect this when I drove in. Um, <coughs> Beautiful weather and not a not a leaf moving. There's no wind, so yeah. There we go. Should we walk around then, and perhaps you can show me interesting parts of it? Let's go into my office just real quick. Sure and thing. This didn't happen as uh, as a presidential candidate. This was a sitting president that came to the Iowa State Fair, I believe, in 2002. When he came, his motorcade came through the gate, and they didn't stop to pay. <laughs> and one of the press pool said, uh, while they were here, why didn't the president pay his $8 when he came through the gate? Well, about two days after the fair, I got a letter in the mail, a card from George W. Bush, and he gave me $8 to the fair. And so, and he signed each one of them. And so we, and here he is at the fair, uh, but he gave me a little setting closed. Please find my $8 entry fee to the Iowa State Fair. Thanks, George. So, <laughs> and, and uh, when uh, John Edwards was running for president, he would always make a big deal out of him stopping, walking up to the window, buying a ticket, and then presenting it to the gate. You know, he was, that was something that was a photo op that he just wanted to do. So, so now we're back to, back to the great outside. So I'm Gary Slater, CEO and manager of the Iowa State Fair. 
I can't imagine too many managers of state fairs in any other 49 states have got pictures with at least two presidents I've just seen on your wall. Yeah, we're very fortunate in Iowa that uh, because of our status with the caucuses, uh, we are um, uh, a place that, that candidates want to come and be seen, uh, and it uh, is a uh, kind of a stopping grounds in that year before the primaries, uh, before the uh, Iowa caucuses, that we tend to have most of the interest with our presidential candidates. So we're going to have a walk around and look at different parts of the fair, but paint a picture for me of what it's like on the fair time itself. When is it? What time of year? How long does it run for? How many people are here? The Iowa State Fair annually is in the uh, middle of August. Uh, we run for 11 days. Uh, it's been around uh, since 1854, so 162 years. I'll paint you a picture from two years ago on the first Saturday of the fair. It was our biggest attended day, 115,000 people that day. It was a day such as the day that you and I are standing here. Uh, it was uh, not a cloud in the sky. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. Uh, we had Donald Trump here. We had Senator Hillary Clinton here, and we had Bernie Sanders here all the same day and their entourage of press and staffers uh, trying to keep them in three separate parts of the grounds and then giving them access to the stump speech, which Bernie Sanders did that day, the other two did not, uh, but they each held their own press conferences. They each uh, went to either the cattlemen or the pork producers respectively and greeted uh, people and shook hands and and, and talk to Iowans uh, about their candidacy. All happened that day, as well as uh, the fair went on and uh, cattle were shown and, and uh, queens were crowned and, and all of that as well. Presidential candidates want to perform well in that first test of their popularity and the Iowa caucus, which happens at the end of January, 1st of February, is that first time when all the candidates are rated or ranked and Iowa has the ability or has the uh, position to do that first. And so when, you, when, the, when the horses start from a gate, the first one out of the gate is the favorite until somebody else overtakes them. And so you always wanna perform first and so getting your name out and being popular in the state of Iowa, people knowing what you stand for and who you are is important. And one of the ways to do that is to be at the Iowa State Fair because you get a lot of press coverage uh, by the media, uh, no matter what you're doing. And uh, we also have a newspaper here, the Des Moines Register, that gives them a forum on our grounds to give a, a speech, a stump speech, and that uh, speech is covered by all forms of media throughout the uh, Midwest or the nation, and uh, that gives them notoriety. I thought I'd just ask at this point our friends from the Des Moines Register to step in and explain the role that their soapbox plays at the fair. This is Carol Hunter, news director at the paper. Yes, the soapbox is a tradition now, actually, that uh, is not all that old. Uh, uh, it started uh, after the 2000 um, cycle. But uh, the Iowa State Fair has been this magnet for politicians since the middle of the 19th century. Uh, we have historical photos of 
presidents visiting um, going back decades. And so we thought, well, if all these politicians come to the fair, why not have them address the public? And so we, we called it the, the Des Moines Register Soapbox, and it started out with very humble beginnings. Uh, basically, it's just we give them the microphone for 20 minutes. That's all they get. They can do whatever they want with that 20 minutes. They can talk for two minutes and leave. A few of them have kind of cut it short. Uh, or sometimes weather comes into play because it is outdoors. Um, they can do Q&A with the audience uh, if they wish. Um, it, but it's, it's this really very open place where um, people from all over Iowa can come see a possible next president of the United States. So, Carol, this is proper on-the-stump stuff. Politicians literally standing on a soapbox and addressing people who perhaps haven't come for the politics, have just come for the fair, but nonetheless having their say and questioning someone who might become the next president. One thing that's neat about it is that many, many political gatherings anymore really attract only one side. You know, the Republicans come to hear their candidates, the Democrats come to hear their candidates. At a place, public place like the Iowa State Fair, open air, everyone can come see a candidate. And it's very informal. People are walking back and forth along the Midway and the Grand Concourse on the fairgrounds. You get people catcalling uh, uh, a candidate. And that's perhaps, from a candidate's point of view, one of the difficult things is they never know what to expect. Indeed, this romantic ideal of candidates meeting the public hasn't always gone entirely to plan, has it? And sometimes it's even carried over and had an impact from the Iowa State Fair into the general election itself. It was from the soapbox at the Iowa State Fair in 2008 that Mitt Romney gave the famous line, corporations are people too. Uh, he'd been talking about the need to lower taxes on people, and someone from the crowd just kind of yelled out corporations. And... You know, he doesn't think there should be as high a taxes on corporations, and he came out with this line, corporations are people too, and it's become quite infamous. It's been played again and again and again, and it's very much seared in voters' memory. So it can get pretty brutal. Here is Mitt Romney in 2007 at the Iowa State Fair at the Des Moines Register Stokebox getting an absolute pasting, which, even though he won the Iowa caucus and went on to be the Republican nominee, came back to haunt him in the general election when Barack Obama's campaign played this line back and back and back again. Do I believe that Social Security should take no part in deficit reduction negotiations? Is that the question? They cannot add to the deficit. And the answer is this. Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid account for about half of federal spending. A lie. Not the deficit. A lie. Just hold on. Not federal losing. About, a lie. Little talk. About half of federal spending. And if we are ultimately, not just this year, but over the coming decades, going to be able to balance our budget and not spend more than we take in, we have to make sure that the promises we make in Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare are promises we can keep. And there are various ways of doing that. One is we could raise taxes on people. That's not the way that... Corporations. Cor corporations are people, my friend. We can raise taxes on... Of course they are. Everything corporations earn ultimately goes to people. So where do you think it goes? Well, what, whose pockets? Whose pockets? People's pockets. 
Okay, human beings, my friend. So number one, so number one, you can raise taxes. You can raise taxes. So you can see it's pretty confrontational stuff. After that, I think anyone deserves a bit of a break. So Gary showed me around the rest of the fairground. We also have some fun things for them to do. And, and it's always neat to see uh, maybe some of our political candidates out of their suit and tie, uh, pouring tea for the Iowa pork producers, or looking at the butter cow, or, or uh, when President Obama was here, he came with his wife and kids and they rode midway rides. You know, so those were kind of fun shots to see and quips to see uh, that maybe they are human and, uh, and maybe there's more to them than, than just the, uh, the Washington uh, feel that you get. Now, I've seen pictures, I don't know if it's here, of them eating things. Is there a traditional thing they've got to eat when they come to the Iowa State Fair? If you know anything about the Iowa State Fair, you'll know that, that we're noted for our food. And uh, so we're a food fair. There are lots of things uh, on a stick, over 70 items on a stick here at the Iowa State Fair. And uh, invariably, you will see one, all of the candidates eating something here, whether it's a corn dog, whether it's a pork chop on a stick. Uh, pork chops are big because Iowa produces uh, more hogs than any other state uh, in the United States, so pork chops are big. Uh, but the crazy things are also fun to eat, whether it's a deep fried Oreo, a deep fried Twinkie, um, Cajun chicken on a stick, uh, hot pretzels, mini donuts, all of these things. We even have salad on a stick, so we have something healthy. Hi, how are you? Hello, sweetie. What can I get for you? Well, so I'm come from England to do a story about the Iowa State Fair oh, yeah. and someone said you've got to have something on a stick that's the kind of oh. so what have you got on a stick well we got corn dogs uh -huh. just give it to him it's been sitting there a minute but that's all right I'll have one of those you thank you very it. much how much do I nothing oh you're very kind <laughs> thank you so much you guys it's a hospitality state for a reason doll oh yeah <laughs> remember that thank you just been given very kindly a corn dog um, and you've, I could beat someone to death with this it's it's phenomenal and it tastes mm, tastes like fattening death which which at the moment is a good thing the size and scale of the fair and the fairground is absolutely phenomenal when you get a chance to see it for yourself and you can understand why candidates are so keen to go to a place where they get a chance to talk to a million voters over the process of 11 days and it happens in the august before the caucus in january february so this is a full kind of six months before the caucus and a good 18 months or so before the presidential election itself but about this time the candidates are going to every event they can to try and get their name out there the other real big one in the iowa calendar is the Jefferson Jackson Day dinner. Norm Sturzenbach again. The Jefferson Jackson dinner has a, a long history in Iowa um, and not just around presidential politics. Um, I don't, I was asking earlier today when it started and, I, and no one seems to really have an answer on that, um, just a long time ago. And it's, it's essentially a fundraiser for the state Democratic Party to raise funds to be able to help elect Democrats um, up and down the ticket. Um, it has become in presidential caucus years, or I should say the year before the presidential caucus, um, as, a, as a pretty major national event and a, an important fixture in 
the caucus process and, and thus running for president. Um, but at its core, it's really just a fundraiser for the state party. So it's a, it's a dinner um, that people pay for a ticket, they get a meal, they listen to some speeches, and then they go home, essentially. Um, but it has become quite a circus and spectacle, um, particularly when presidential candidates are in attendance. My job was to oversee the politics, um, and, and that meant largely working with the presidential candidates um, to put on the show of the event. Um, so I got a, a firsthand view um, of that event from, um, you know, right up next to the stage, um, everything from conception all the way to um, the final speech. So what is it, I asked Norm, that makes the Jefferson Jackson Day dinner so important? Well, the first the first thing is that it's a it's a media event, and while there are ten thousand Iowans in the room, the audience is is really much much bigger than that, and it's it's geared towards um, the presidential candidates are mostly interested in uh, potential Iowa caucus goers that are not in attendance at the event, um, as most of the crowd I would say that that goes to this event have already made up their mind, um, and that's because one of the presidential candidates have purchased a ticket for them or their regular um, sort of party activists and donors and, and probably had made up their mind months in advance. So the audience that the candidates are playing to is um, Iowa caucus goers and then, of course, a national audience as it's often um, broadcast live on C-SPAN and other networks as well as um, clips of it replayed over and over again. So the first thing is is to understand that um, what the real audience of the room is and to make sure that everything that's going into the event is catered around making sure it looks good on television um, for the rest of the country. So 2007, I think I'm right in saying, was quite um, eventful in terms of Barack Obama's ascendancy to the position of party nominee. I think it was the first time in that speech that he used the, the fired up and ready to go story. Um, could you say a little bit about your memory of that? Yeah, so, you know, obviously at the beginning of 2007, Hillary Clinton was going to be the Democratic nominee, and there it was just really sort of a formality. Um, and um, throughout the course of that year, particularly in the fall, Barack Obama really emerged. He sort of had a, a breakout moment at another event in Iowa, the Harkin Steak Fry, which is used to be another uh, longstanding staple in Iowa politics. Um, and that was sort of his first emergence as uh, a strong or on a strong organizing front, um, but they really prepared hard for the Jefferson Jackson dinner to make sure that um, that was a moment that people were going to be paying attention to and that he really rose to the occasion. Um, one of the things that was pretty interesting that the Obama campaign did, it was in an arena. The event took place in an arena and there was about 10,000 people. And the stage during presidential years, we always um, do the stage in the round, meaning that there isn't a podium. And so we're trying to get the candidates to uh, walk around and, and engage more with different parts of the audience instead of just speaking straightforward to them at a, at a dais. Um, and what that created was an interesting effect in the arena. The Obama campaign was pretty smart, and they, they really strategically tried to um, book their tickets to get people uh, to have their, their supporters on two sides of the stadium. And so in the lead-up to it, in between other speakers before the event started, they had a really good call and response between both sides of the stadium. So one side would start the chant, fired up, and then the other side of the, the stadium would respond with, ready to go. 
and they would do this for a few minutes, and it would it really had an, a big impact on in the room. Um, one, it got their supporters really fired up and ready to go. But beyond that, it it had a, a pretty magical effect in the room because of the echo, because of the energy, um, and it's when you really got a sense that something spectacular was was starting to happen here that might have been, um, you know, a little bit under the radar. And it just goes to show you how one voice can change a room. And, and, if, and if it can change a room, it can change a city. And if it can change a city, it can change a state. And if it can change a state, it can change a nation. And if it can change a nation, it can change the world. So I just have one question for you. Are you fired up? Ready to go? Fired up? Ready to go? Fired up? Ready to go? Let's go finish what we started. So how do I follow that soaring oratory? I'm not entirely sure I can, to be honest. So back to the story. Um, the key thing seems to be that successful candidates use a Jefferson Jackson Day dinner to create what Norm describes as the breakout point. And indeed, this doesn't even seem to be a particularly recent phenomenon. It's what every politician who stumps at the JJ dinner is after. The first time I remember seeing this was in 1999, um, Al Gore versus Bill Bradley. And Bill Bradley was gaining some momentum in the Iowa caucuses. He was, you know, Al Gore was the vice president and the likely nominee, but uh, Bill Bradley was starting to gain some momentum. And during the 99 J.J. dinner, um, Al Gore completely changed his stump speech. It was right after he decided to move his campaign out of Washington and down to Tennessee um, because it was perceived as being too out of touch. And he completely changed his stump speech starting at that event. And one of the, the elements of that speech was stay and fight. And it was went along with an earned media strategy of how um, Bill Bradley left the Senate um, a couple of years earlier, retired um, after only a couple of terms, and all of the things that happened once Bill Bradley left that he didn't stay and fight for, and Al Gore had been there fighting from the beginning. And so it, it really was a pivotal moment in that campaign and um, is largely credited for Al Gore's comeback and then ultimately defeating Bill Bradley in the caucuses. Similar moment happened with John Kerry in um, the 2004 caucuses where he was the front runner at the beginning, but then as the summer and um, early fall progressed, uh, Dick Gephardt and um, and more, more importantly, Howard Dean had really started to take, take hold. And in Iowa, it was really sort of a fight between Dick Gephardt and Howard Dean. But what the J.J. dinner then um, had done for John Kerry is he um, sort of changed up his message, changed up his speech. They really invested a lot of time and energy into the, the J.J. dinner and the, all the theatrics of it um, and organizing for it and, and impressed the media with the speech and the response that they got from the audience that started to change the narrative um, back towards John Kerry, and he ultimately won the, uh, won the caucuses. And then, of course, Barack Obama followed that same, that same strategy um, in 2007, although I'll say all the campaigns tried to follow that strategy, too. They all tried to have a breakout moment um, at that dinner. It's just Barack Obama was the one that really carried the day. So I'd heard a huge amount about the impact and effect of Barack Obama's speech that year at the Jefferson Jackson Day dinner. I really wanted to know what it was like to be in the room at that time. 
I remember listening to his speech, and you could hear a pin drop in the room because everybody in the room, the Clinton supporters, the Edwards supporters, the Bill Richardson supporters, the Chris Dodd supporters, the Biden supporters, didn't matter. They were all solely focused on his speech. They were captivated. Um, and it was one of the most remarkable things that I have seen because it was such a rambunctious um, and enthusiastic crowd all the way up until you know he was speaking, and then he just really captured everybody. And that moment um, it turned out to be pretty remarkable and one that he personally prepared for um, because he knew it was, was one of the most important speeches he was going to give up to that point. So we've done the fair and we've done the dinner. I close by asking Norm whether or not there was anything else that presidential candidates simply had to do while stumping in Iowa ahead of the election day itself. Thinking about the lead up to the Iowa caucuses and the things that are that are sort of the most important, there really there really has only been a couple of uh, key moments that are very visible um, before you get to the caucuses themselves. And and one is we've obviously been talking about, which is the Jefferson Jackson dinner. Another one that had been a, a, a big staple is the Harkin steak fry, um, it, which was an event hosted by um, former Senator Tom Harkin, who was senator. Um, it was hosted all the way through the time when he was a U.S. senator uh, from Iowa, and it was a big outdoor you know, picnic, um, and they, they grilled steaks, and um, it was just a fun you know, early fall, September um, afternoon. But I felt at this point that I'd eaten enough to tell the truth, and we're rapidly approaching the election day itself. So I wanted to talk to some people who have caucused before and get a real sense from them about what it is like on the day to go into that room and cast your vote in front of all your friends and neighbours. I was very, very lucky to meet with Kathy and Ray, who took me into their front room in Des Moines, Iowa, to discuss the process. My name is Kathy New, and I am a small business owner, and I've caucused four times. Hi, my name is Ray New. Um, I'm a migrant IT worker, and I've um, caucused three times. So caucus night, um, well, no, let's, let's, let's not even start there. Let's start with this. It's a proud part of Iowa's history and traditions. Um, it absolutely. is. It is yeah. to be first in the nation. First, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, does it really mean something to people? In that I think it does. Um, there was some talk last time about um, New Hampshire going first, and people in Iowa were pretty up in arms about that. Mm -hmm. So... I think it. I think it's important to them. A certain degree of responsibility comes, does it not, with being an Iowa caucus goer? I think so. I think that um, being an, a caucus goer is important in Iowa because you do sort of set the tone for the nation, and it, it builds the the initial momentum. Uh, I remember when Obama was elected the first time; um, he won hugely in, in Iowa, and nobody expected that. And this time around, the caucus was pretty interesting as well because people weren't expecting Bernie to be as strong as he was. I kept hearing things like, oh, this is going to be boring. It's just going to be Hillary's coronation. Well, this is the worst coronation I've ever been to. <laughs> Could you say a little bit about, and just, just paint a picture for me. I mean, almost walk me through the process for you that is. Yeah, it, it's what the caucus for us is walking distance. So that night we went up there. And most of our neighbors were there. And, um, yeah, most of our neighbors. This is a very high um, Democratic population in this neighborhood. So um, there were 
like we said, there were 350 people. How did they pick the buildings that they used? That's a mystery. So that's a mystery. Like I said, the last time we did this, we were in a school gymnasium. Though Actually, the last three times I did this, we were in a school gymnasium, which was much larger. Yeah, where so, I was all the time was the high school. Right. Yeah. So you go there and you start the registration. You go there to see if you're on the rolls. If you're on the rolls, if you're not, you have to... Because sometimes they change the precincts, so you have to re-register. Or like for Raymond, he had to change um, party. Change party, so he had to re-register as a Democrat. You can do that at caucus. Um, so then you, so then you, you know, you, you have all that um, registration stuff, which went on forever and ever and ever. And then finally, when they get everybody in, because people were standing outside down the street, and then it started snowing and it was getting very cold. So they tried to get everybody that they could inside, just so they would be warm. And um, we finally got everybody registered, so they put all that stuff away, and then they start their little speeches or whatever, mm-hmm. and then they divide, they divide into right. their camps. There was hardly any room between the divisions because it was so cramped. Yeah, yeah. It's quite a pu- it's a public thing, isn't it? It's not a secret ballot, right? So your neighbours, because you presumably poll caucus in the in the same district as your neighbours, yes. are going to see which corner of the room you're standing in. Correct. Yes. How, what's that like? It's okay with me because I'm, you know, I, I don't, I'm not ashamed of who I vote for and I don't, I don't really care what people think. Some people, presumably though, I, you could imagine communities, and I don't know if it's like this in parts of Iowa, where there must be a real degree of pressure to be seen to go into the right corner of the room. I would, I would think there is some pressure to go into the right corner because, especially in Iowa, because, you know, Iowa City, Des Moines, Cedar Rapids are relatively liberal. Um, you get outside of that, and it's very conservative. Um, so actually, even to be seen going into the Democratic caucus could be an issue. Right. I only saw a little bit of that from the Republican side, and that was basically for the people who I consider more religious. Okay, then, you know, there would be a little bit of pressure, but, you know, I don't know. Coming from where I came from, Washington, D.C., you know, you can ignore a lot. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it makes a difference? The the do you think people change their vote on the day in accordance with what's going on in the hall? Oh, I think there are some people that will change their vote on the day, um, because I think there are some people that are really undecided. Um, yeah. And in our caucus, O'Malley was not viable. Um, Bernie won our caucus. Um, so what then happens to all the people who initially were for O'Malley before he became not viable? Well. They can they can leave their votes there, or they can move to um, another candidate. So that's what we were trying to get all the O'Malley people into the Bernie people, and I think O'Malley people more aligned with Bernie anyway. And what does that look like? You, are you I mean, are you shouting at them, or are you? I think some people do. I think some people shout. I think they're. Yeah. I think they can get very heated. Right. Um, but they just kind of they have people that are you know good talkers, and they just go around and talk to people and. They try to actually this time the O'Malley people were talking to the Bernie people and the Hillary people, asking for some of them to come over to make him viable. Right, that but, was what we initially saw. But uh, I know that the Bernie the Bernie camp, um, in Iowa anyway was like don't give up a vote. I don't care who it is. Don't give up a vote. So there's a, I mean this it's an incredible amount of politics and it's very very different to a standard vote, isn't it? I, I imagine right. that elections are won or lost on the skill of your caucus organisers and your caucus goers. 
as opposed to just sticking a ballot in a ballot box. Absolutely. Or and misrepresenting Absolutely. the numbers because uh, it happened in the last. It does caucus. happen. <laughs> it was in. Okay, not this past one, but the previous one, because the person who actually won wasn't announced until two weeks afterward. Where they had a miscount. Yeah. Right. So there's some of those shenanigans in there as well. What Ray was referring to at the end there was a fascinating incident that took place in 2012 in the Republican caucuses, whereby on the night itself, when the results came in, Mitt Romney, the eventual nominee, was declared the winner by eight votes. But two weeks later, subsequently losing him all the momentum that victory would have given him, Rick Santorum was actually declared the winner by 34 votes. And yet Romney came out of the Iowa caucus having been seen to be the winner and still the front runner and went on successfully to win the other states and get the eventual nomination. I wanted to touch a bit more on all these different things, particularly the idea of calling people over within the room, how a caucus differs from primaries, and then this idea of momentum towards the end. To do that, I caught up with one of the top pollsters in the entire country. My name is J.N. Selzer. I'm the president of Selzer & Company. I do polling for the Des Moines Register's Iowa poll and for Bloomberg Politics, most notably, among other things. So you're very modest. You're the foremost poller in Iowa, aren't you? <laughs> Oh, in Iowa, that's easy. <laughs> On the planet, that's harder. <laughs> Do you think that in the context of the caucuses, that the ground game of the campaigns on the night itself, like in the room, because I was, I was learning about the different, perhaps you could say a bit about this, about some candidates are unviable and then they're kind of calling them over. And right. Is that an important part of the process that doesn't feature in primaries? So... I tell the story of my sister who was living in Iowa City at the time and very excited to support Hillary Clinton. This would be the first woman president. And she and her husband walked into the gymnasium at the high school and they were met by people from the Obama campaign who gave them a bottle of water and said, you know, we hope you're going to come and stand in our corner. And the next thing they're met by the John Edwards People and they're giving them a brownie and said, you know, we hope you're going to come and join us. And they looked over in the far corner and there was this little tiny sign that said Hillary Clinton and three people standing over there. So, so of course, they went and joined them, but they were not viable and had to move and join another or, you know, organization, another candidate's group, in order for their vote to count. You can go uncommitted, maybe that's getting too far into the weeds, but you, there's, there's something that happens, of course, when your candidate isn't viable, now what? Now you have to decide what it is that you want to do, who's your second choice. So that's another thing that we do in caucus polling that we wouldn't do in a primary, which is to say, who's your second choice? On both sides of, of both parties, the part of the process of the caucus is that things are going to happen in the room. They're going to be in the room where it happened. I don't know if you're a Hamilton person, but <laughs> um, that when you're in the room where it happens, part of the job of those campaigns is to move votes because here's your last chance. And the polls are entrance polls, so they can only predict what you walk into the room intending to do. And our final poll this earlier this year showed Donald Trump winning and Ted Cruz coming in second. And we know anecdotally uh, what happened with the Cruz campaign, which was that they were very well organized. They'd set up a phone bank with literal landline phones, unheard of, and were making 10,000, 20,000 contacts a day 
to their supporters leading up to the caucus. And they're, of course, ex you know, describing to them, instructing them on what it is that you're going to do when you get in the room. Uh, a friend of mine described her caucus that, that here came a van load of cruise supporters from around the country who come in to work the room. They're not going to vote, but they can work the room and try to convince people whom they think will are not going to win, so in this case it was Ben Carson, to say, make your vote count, come with a winner, we can win if you will join us. I'm instinctively slightly perturbed by people offering voters cookies and people coming into the room who aren't there to vote in order to cajole people. It's a legitimate part of the process? This is part of the process, and in fact some of the people who come into the room will be the candidates themselves. Who, who show up at certain caucuses where there's going to be 1,200 people and make their final pitch. The, the candidates' families are going to show up. The campaign managers are going to show up. Now, will they have been able to get a ballot on the Republican side? No. So, and there's, and there's lots of press. <laughs> they're coming, they're gonna let them in the room. So it, it all, there's, there's really hardly ever a concern that votes got counted that shouldn't have been counted, if that's your concern. And I think there are some rules about what you can offer people. I think you can offer water, and I think you can offer a, a cookie, because you're gonna be there for a few <laughs> hours. I don't think you can offer them dinner. I don't think you can offer them booze. <laughs> I don't think you can offer them money. I think there are rules. Fair enough. Um... I next asked Anne about the most important single thing that any presidential candidate can be said to get out of the Iowa caucuses. It's what the West Wing character Josh Lyman used to call the Big Mo, momentum. Historically, they say there's three tickets out of Iowa. You've got to be in the top three in order to stand any chance in the rest of the country. So how does a candidate get that momentum which propels them from Iowa towards the nomination? The, the saying about Iowa is organize, 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 get hot at the end. And in the 2004 contest on the Democratic side, John Kerry ended up winning. But we all think that if there had been a couple more days, John Edwards might have surpassed him. I'm looking at the example of Rudy Giuliani, who famously decided to skip Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina, I think, as well. Uh, you know. He decided, Rudy Giuliani decided that he would play best in Florida. So he would wait and begin his campaign in Florida. And I remember at the time saying, well, good luck with that, because you ignore Iowa at your peril. Iowa's the first place you can win something. So anybody who comes out of Iowa, at having won, now they have something that no other candidate they're running against has. When we first started polling for 2016, um, Bernie Sanders had entered the race with people saying, you know, this is one part admirable and three parts absurd. That was in the New York Times. So there was no sense that his candidacy could do anything. He hit our first poll at 3%. Hillary Clinton at 53%. And as the months went by, Sanders continued to grow. There was never a time that, that the next poll fell from the previous poll. He only gained up and up and up and up and up. And he eventually, on caucus night, was you know, 29 basis points, so less than 1% away from Hillary Clinton in terms of his can, uh, delegate equivalents. 
for me, what that says better than anything is anyone can win in Iowa. It doesn't matter where you start, but you put in the time and you have the right message and you connect to people and you're probably going to bring out some people who haven't gone before. Anyone can win in Iowa. And that's one of the best things about starting here. Do you think, so I think it, my read of that was it was actually, you know, the how many votes did that translate to that he lost by? A couple of thousand, presumably? Oh, I mean, not like, even that much. Like. Yeah. So my question is, do you think that 0.3% of Democratic caucus voters in Iowa who are 20% or, you know, less than that, because it's only the Democrats, so we're talking about a really tiny number of people, we must be talking about couple of hundred, if most a couple of thousand people are responsible for Hillary Clinton being the Democratic nominee? I think in Iowa it can come down to a couple of handfuls of people who make the difference. Had Bernie Sanders won the Iowa caucus, would he be the Democratic nominee? If Bernie Sanders had won, I don't think I can answer that. I don't know. And so with that air of ambiguity still fresh in my ears, I stepped out of Anne's office and I thought to myself, well, doesn't this just totally sum up the brilliance on the one hand and yet the number of complications on the other of a process as unique as the Iowa caucus? You've got these fantastic, organic, real frontline democracy practices taking place in schools and church halls all across the state. And it somehow just seems to work. And yet, at the same time, if you sat down with a blank piece of paper and tried to design a process for this, this is arguably not what you come up with, not a fair and frank way of doing things. A huge number of people across the country doubt the value of having Iowa first. There's been a huge number of conversations about whether or not you should have regional primaries where you have votes in all four corners of different states or even one big primary day where all the states vote at once. Next week, in the next episode, we're in New Hampshire where they've got their own unique take on what it means to be first in the nation. But if I left Iowa sure of anything, it's that a huge number of people there both value and see the importance of their role in choosing the next president of the United States before anybody else gets a say. And so on that note, I'll leave the last word to an Iowan. I would absolutely support keeping the Iowa caucuses first um, in the process and not moving to something of a, of a national primary. And the main reason for that is, is just to keep this, the specialness of uh, the system that we we put into place. If we if we were to move to a national primary or a regional primary, for example, uh, what you would end up the the whole nature of how people campaign for the office of the presidency would change dramatically. Instead of um, going to coffee shops in small town Iowa and and talking to voters and asking question answering questions, what you would see is more and more regional events, um, usually taking place in larger cities, what we call airport rallies. Um, and there would be more speeches and less conversation, uh, more speeches and less question and answers. Um, and that, that changes not only the way that they campaign, but also the, um, the way that messages are formulated, the way policies are formulated, um, and the, I think ultimately the strength of the candidate um, at the end of the day. I would be strongly against anything that takes away from um, requiring um, our candidates to answer questions um, among voters in small groups as, as a method of, of winning the nomination. And I think Iowa provides that. Iowa has a long history of doing it. We've had um, a lot of success with it. 
um, and uh, I think our, our, our party and our country has been stronger because of it. How to Become President of the United States was written and presented by Dave Smith. I hope you enjoyed listening.